Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Real Talk with me, Anna Pajajski. This time I spoke to Agnes Jones, who is an incredibly talented blacksmith. I first heard of Agnes when she was featured on Women's Hour and I embarrassingly fangirled her online and eventually managed to get her to come on the podcast. My conversation with Agnes was really what I think Real Talk is all about. The the insights and the facts and the experiences that Agnes brought based on her hands-on knowledge of working with steels were a really fascinating complement to what I've learned about steel in my career as a material scientist. So anyway, I really hope that you enjoy listening to this episode as much as Agnes and I enjoyed making it. And I started off by asking Agnes what being a blacksmith actually involves. Often I get phone calls from people that have found me on Google who want me to break into their house <laughs> because they've um, <laughs> thought that I'm a locksmith rather than a blacksmith. Oh. But yeah, so a, a blacksmith kind of hits things with hammers mm-hmm. and welds and... Um, all of those kind of ridiculous things that you imagine a, like a huge hulking man to do. Yeah, for the benefit of the listeners, Agnes is not a huge hulking man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my um, one of my tutors at Brighton um, was about five foot tall and so slight, and it made me realise that, you know, you can completely break the stereotypes and it's completely fine. <laughs> exactly, yeah, fantastic. So how did you come to blacksmithing then? Um, I went to Brighton University um, and they had this course called Wood, Metal, Ceramics and Plastics Materials Practice. And it was just kind of an amazing course where you got to play around with different materials and understand what you enjoyed. Um, And I liked doing woodwork and metal. But with wood, you always have to be completely precise with things. Everything has to fit together perfectly. Whereas with metal, you don't really have to do that. You can kind of hit things into place a bit (laughs) at the end. Um, So I quite enjoyed that. Um, And there was this magical moment I found when I was learning to forge where I just understood what I was doing and it was something that I hadn't had with most other materials so I kind of realized that was the thing I needed to do. Nice okay so a magical moment that made you realize that metals and steels were the materials that you really wanted to work with yeah they suited you the most yeah because there's this um you know you're using this material steel it's so solid so kind of uh, structural and then you heat it up 
in the forge um, and it goes red or yellow hot um, and then you can bend it and twist it and turn it into anything. You kind of use it like it's string and then it'll cool and solidify back into a structural thing that you can then use for, you know, the basis of a table or or a piece of, um, yeah, a gate or a piece of furniture. And it's just... Um, yeah, it just seems like a really wonderful material that that kind of that ability that it has to flip between those two states between being really hard and structural and being malleable, incredibly and malleable and flexible. Amazing. So after you went to Brighton, then what did you do after that? I went to work for a blacksmith in uh, just outside Glasgow called John Creed. Um, and he kind of taught me much more about how to actually do a lot of the processes um, and a bit of the business kind of side of things. And then I moved back down to Brighton and worked for a few blacksmiths there and slowly built up my practice. Um, and then I was in London for about four years. And now I'm in Glasgow. I've just made a, a sort of three by four metre gate for housing development in London and a pavilion for a National Trust property. And I've just come back from a residency in France where I made a nine-metre-tall sculpture of um, a woman drawing. Um, so, you know, it's all very varied and exciting. Um, but I think the next project is probably some benches. Oh, wow, cool. So it sounds like you've you've worked with quite a lot of blacksmiths around the country. Are there a lot of blacksmiths then? It's not something I've ever come across. Yeah, I think they're all quite hidden because no one seems to want to have a blacksmith near them because of the sound and the fact they've got a really big fire. Okay. Um, so it was always really hard to find a workshop mm-hmm. or a sort of studio space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there must be 15 or 20 in London. I'll have to check on the Baba website. So Baba is the British Artist Blacksmithing Association. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, there's sort of 60 or 80 blacksmiths around the country. Oh, OK. So you talked then about your workshop. Is it as we would imagine with quite sort of dirty surroundings, hot fires, hot metal everywhere? Or yes. Is it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, actually, I've got a shed, um, a big metal shed in the garden of the studio block that I'm in. It just has to be somewhere where you're not right next to someone's house. (laughs) I mean, I've never burnt anything down, but (laughs) people do tend to get a bit wary when you've got a fire. Yeah. Um, But now, actually, I have a gas forge rather than a coal one, so it looks slightly less romantic, but the gas forges are really, really useful. Cool. So maybe we should step back a little bit and just define... The material that we're talking about today, which is steel, because that's the material that you work with day to day. Okay, so I think steel is iron plus carbon and occasionally other things as well. Yeah, that's a great definition. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I I use mild steel, which I think is uh, 0.3% carbon. Okay. But you also sometimes use tool steel, which I think has tungsten or cobalt in it as well. Um, And then there's stainless, which has 10 to 20 percent chromium, is it? And then my favourite kind of steel, which is Corten steel, which is um, corrosion resistant and uh, tensile strength steel. Okay. So I don't know if you've noticed sometimes buildings have um, a steel outside that's completely rusted. 
And that's Core 10, which is a kind of a weathering steel. So it weathers, but that weathered kind of rust provides a protection for the steel underneath. So it's apparently constantly developing and regenerating that, that protective shield. Wow, that's cool. Which is lovely. So do you know what other elements go into Core 10 steel? I have a list here. Yay! But um, I don't know what the letters mean. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, no, this is a challenge. Okay. Uh, Carbon, silicon, manganese, potassium, sulfur, (laughs) chromium, copper, vanadium, and nickel. It's quite a lot. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so all of those different elements presumably have their own effect on how the steel weathers and how the steel is strengthened by those additions. Yeah. Which is interesting. (laughs) Because normally if you have steel and you let it rust, that rust will slowly eat into the the rest of the metal and it'll fall apart. Right. But um, it's quite amazing that they've got this, um, that that kind of creates a protective layer. Yeah. An amazing recipe for this. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, I once described to someone, maybe it was on this podcast, I can't remember, how... With with steels and with sort of metallurgy, you've kind of got the periodic table as like your ingredients, like you're making a cake and then your main ingredients are, is iron usually. And then you've got your carbons and your chromiums and all that kind of thing. And you can flavour it with different things to give it <laughs> a slightly different feel. Maybe now we should chat a bit more about what blacksmithing is and the history of it, because it's a very, very old craft, as as many people will know. So the Iron Age, I think, was from around 1200 BC, and iron allowed uh, for big changes in tool making um, and tool development because, you know, it's this material that's so much harder than any of the materials that we had before. So it allowed you to make things like plows that wouldn't break as easily and wouldn't bend as easily. Um, And I think all of those things were important for farming and that kind of led to societal changes. Um, The better tools then allowed for better blacksmithing. So, you you know, you um, could then improve metalworking itself using the iron, which I quite like. Then I don't really know very much about what happened between then and the Industrial Revolution, but that massively changed blacksmithing as you know it. Mm-hmm. So before that, it had been um, there would always have been a blacksmith in the village who would have made all of the tools necessary, you know, horseshoes, weapons, but also farming equipment and um, window l- latches and things like that. With the Industrial Revolution that, you know, allowed for machine forging and large-scale casting of things, which means that you can then make vast structures like cast-iron bridges. Like, Uh I think the first cast-iron bridge was across the River Severn, and it was in 1779. Oh, wow. It's a pretty amazing building. So... Bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Construction, I guess. Construction, yeah. (laughs) What is the process of casting then? This isn't something that I do. Okay. Because I just hit things. But it is, you know, you're melting the iron and pouring it into moulds. Okay. Um, And it creates a material that's much more brittle. So often people come with um, a cast iron fireplace that has shattered um, and they want me to fix it. And it's quite difficult to do that because the way it's made, you don't... 
if you're trying to weld that together, it's more likely just to shatter in another place rather than be able to be completely fixed back together. Oh, okay. Because you're never going to be able to heat the whole of it up to the same temperature yeah. at the same time. Okay. And if you don't heat it all up, then the difference in one part of the metal compared to another is more likely to kind of break it some more. Oh. So generally, if you're forging with something, you can have a piece of steel that's a foot long and one end can be white hot and you can hold the other end. No way. Like it's so, the heat transfer is, is terrible. Right. Which is really helpful for forging, mm -hmm. but not for welding and things like okay. that. Okay, so you couldn't do that with a piece of copper, probably. No. <laughs> Interesting. No, that would be, yeah, incredibly hot the whole way through. Okay, so casting is the process where you melt the material and you cast it into moulds mm -hmm. and then it takes the shape of the mould. You talked about forging, which is really what you do. How is that different from casting? So forging is when you heat it up to a uh, white or yellow hot and then you hit it. So what you're doing is um, changing the shape of the metal and you can do things like hammering it into a point or bending it or um, splitting it. So you can then turn it into can you know make a hole in it and drift it which means that you're kind of opening it out into a bigger hole or yeah there are lots and lots of different things you can do but it's mainly hitting <laughs> <laughs> nice so have you got a collection of hammers with which you hit steels yes yeah. And in fact, I did a, a project where I was going around various blacksmiths in the country and asking them about their favourite hammer. Oh. Everyone has a favourite hammer. And they'll always say, oh, this is the perfect hammer for drawing things down because it's the perfect shape and the perfect weight. And then you'll go and talk to someone else and they'll say exactly the same thing, but about a completely different <laughs> hammer. So it's just, I suppose, it's these tools that you're using every day. They mm -hmm. kind of become an extension of your arm. So people have massive favourites. Yeah, personal preferences. <laughs> yeah. So how big are these hammers then? Normal sized hammers or are they yeah. bigger than... Yeah, just normal kind of hammer size. Ha but <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> completely failed there. Like yes. a normal hammer. I, I know what you mean. <laughs> the size of a normal hammer. But I think mine is two pounds, but that's because I'm not very strong. Okay. I know people that use kind of three or four pound hammers. Right. You don't want to injure yourself, right? <laughs> and some blacksmiths I know are definitely much bigger on one side than they are on the other. Really? And I've decided to try not to become lopsided. <laughs> do you have to do weightlifting to like, <laughs> become strong enough? <laughs> Stupid question. I haven't, no. <laughs> no, it's just I think the more you work, the, the stronger you get. Yeah, okay. But I remember finding it really difficult at the start. Sure. And do you do you improve in techniques so you kind of know how to hit the metal? Yeah. So I do a lot of teaching and uh, one of the main moments for people is when they realise that they've been holding the hammer wrong and they've been swinging it in a kind of an unhelpful way. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you kind of, you correct their grip and tell them to use the weight of the hammer rather than the power of their muscles, right. uh, it kind of, it becomes much easier. Yeah. So yeah, there are definite techniques that you can use. Mm. Hence why you don't have to be a big Hulk yeah. to be a blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> it's for everybody. <laughs> I'm interested in the processes that you use. So you've talked about hitting things. That's presumably to get the metal thinner. 
Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that right? Yeah, but it's also to do other things. So you can hit it to draw something down. You are drawing it down to a point. So you're squashing it on. You squash it on one side, then turn it. 90 degrees and then squash it on that side so you're mm-hmm. turning it into a square and as you hit it down the length of it it'll get thinner and thinner mm-hmm. and then you can turn it back into a round thing if that's what you want then if you're trying to hammer something into a right angle you can hammer it over the edge of an anvil and then if you hit it on the top it'll sort of spread down and form a kind of a right Angle, okay. If that makes any sense. Yep, yep. There's another technique called upsetting. So if you're upsetting a bar, you're hammering it from either from the top or sort of into itself so mm-hmm. that it spreads. So instead of reducing the amount of metal that you've got in a certain area, you're increasing the amount. So it kind of ends up looking a bit like an elephant foot or a tulip or something. Okay. Like yeah. Yeah, I was talking about drifting before, which is when you're opening up hole. But other things you can do are bending the metal. So that's using a tool called the dogs. So it's, a, it's sort of a bar with two little bars coming out of the end, mm-hmm. which look a little bit like ears, Okay, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, you can use them to latch onto the bar. You can twist using various things, but I tend to use a clamp. Mm-hmm. And you can cut it using a chisel. Okay. So if you get it white hot and then hammer it onto a chisel, that will cut Ah. the metal. So drifting where you're spreading it, um, you can then put another bar in that hole and it closes around it as it cools. Mm -hmm. That's a good way of joining metal together. And another way would be wrapping one bar around another. So those are kind of the artistic and more traditional ways of joining things together. I mean, the most important thing about forging is the whole process of heating it up. Mm, okay. And annealing. In my understanding of annealing is that you've shaped it and it's in the shape that you want it, but in shaping it, you've added some internal stresses into the material. So it's kind of stretched in a way that it wouldn't necessarily want to be. So by heating it up again, you allow the material to relax into the shape that it already is um, and you relieve some of those internal stresses and so when we were talking about that fireplace earlier that had shattered Mm -hmm. that that would be because when you cast it you're introducing internal stresses and so eventually when you heat it up and cool it down heat it up and cool it down again in a fire Mm -hmm. eventually those stresses are going to be too much and so the material shatters earlier you talked about heating the metal up till it's white hot or yellow hot. Mm. Is that something that you just do by eye? You know when it's going to be at the right temperature because of the colour that it is glowing? Yeah, so often forges in workshops are quite dark because you need to be able to judge the temperature um, by the colour that it goes. So if you go to an old forge... um, And a really good example of this is one in Lewis in Sussex. It's really dark in there. You've got to be careful because um, steel does burn. Okay. And you don't want that to happen because it stops you from doing anything with that piece of metal. What happens when it burns? Turns into a sparkler. No way. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, it's great to see and it smells fantastic, but it makes it completely useless. Right, kind wow. Crumbles apart. I, I didn't know steel could burn. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I've written down that it burns at 1,316 degrees. 
So thankfully, my forage doesn't go up that high. Right. So I never have to so worry you, about this. Okay. Which means that it's really useful for, I do quite a lot of teaching. Yeah. It's really useful for that because it means that a student isn't going to ruin their own work. <laughs> Make a sparkler. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We thought we might be able to talk about a bit of the science about what's going on, which is what I know about, mm-hmm. and then relate that to what your experience is yeah. in actually doing it. So should we give it a go? Excellent, yeah. This is going to be a bit of an Let's experiment. So... At room temperature, when you first receive the steel, mm-hmm. uh, it's in what we call the alpha phase. This is where the atoms are in a, a body-centered cubic structure. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's break that down a bit. So most metals are crystals, and that means that the atoms are all lined up in a really neat atomic structure. The smallest repeating unit in that atomic structure is called the unit cell. And in the different ways that the atoms are arranged in that unit cell, that can often tell us about the physical properties like the amount of ductility that it has or its hardness or or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So at room temperature, it's in a body-centred cubic. If you can imagine a cube and a little atom sitting on the corners of that cube and then also one in the middle, that's body-centred cubic. When you heat it up, you change the phase of that material so it turns into a face-centred cubic structure. So now if you imagine your cube... and you've got atoms on all of the corners, you've now, instead of having one additionally in the middle, you've got it on the faces, like a number one on a dice Mm -hmm. is in the middle. So it's in the middle of all the six different faces of the cube. And this structure is repeated throughout the entire structure. The temperature that it changes at is 910 degrees. Uh Aha. Yeah. Well, that is the temperature at which you are starting to use it for bending and things like that. That's kind of cherry red. Okay. 
on the, the scale of colour. <laughs> on the colour scale. But you would work with it hotter than 910, would you, generally? Yeah, above 910, it gets into kind of more oranges. Mm-hmm. The really, the best temperatures to work at are kind of 1,000 to 1,200. Okay. That's when it's really ductile and sort of malleable. Yeah, so when you're making tools, after you've made the tool, you then heat it to a much lower uh, temperature range um, and it goes all of these incredible colours. So it goes a kind of straw yellow and then it goes up through various purples into lovely blue. And I, I don't have the list here, but there are different tools require you to heat it to a different colour. So it'll say like say a chisel you've got to heat it to straw yellow or a punch heat it to to that kind of ultramarine blue and it's amazing to see that steel goes all of these colors before it then gets on to the kind of the red hot yellow hot white hot thing yeah i had no idea that steel could go purple and blue that's amazing they don't it doesn't really stay that color unfortunately Mm. i mean it does a little bit but it's not really a very practical way of finishing something right So we were, yeah, before the microphones were turned on, we were talking about favourite things made of steel. And I was like, oh, I need to think of mine. Oh, I panic. And then I was going to say my bike. Oh, brilliant. Um, and when I went bike shopping, mm-hmm. uh, I went to a really nice bike shop and they gave me a steel frame to try and an aluminium frame to try. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, I want the aluminium frame because it's much lighter and that's what cool people use. Um, but... When I rode the two bikes, they made me ride them down this cobbly street to see how comfortable they were. And the steel frame was exponentially more comfortable on a cobbly street than oh. an aluminium frame. Because apparently steel is much better at absorbing shock oh, than aluminium. Mm-hmm. So I got the steel frame. Excellent. Yeah. Do you have to carry it upstairs? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> that is where steel doesn't do very well. Right. And yeah, any kind of weightlifting contest. Yeah. But I mean, to be fair, I had a bike that was my granny's. So it was from the 70s and um, maybe they haven't they hadn't reduced the thickness of the steel tubes as much as they do now. Right. But it was um, just unbelievably heavy. Mm. Okay, what's your favourite thing made of steel then? Oh, God. I should have thought of something, shouldn't I? What did other people say to you when you put it out on Twitter? I got a lot of big industrial things. Okay. So uh, the Crystal Palace, the Eiffel Tower, the Finiston Crane, because I live in Glasgow. So um, that's this huge um, boat building crane. And it's it's beautiful. Wow, cool. Um, I mean, it's beautiful if you like big industrial things yeah rather I mean, than beautiful sleek things. i think listeners to real talk like big industrial <laughs> things <laughs> the fourth rail bridge mm-hmm. someone said superman what? superman i think is sometimes described as no i don't know I don't... <laughs> never mind <laughs> let's cut that back up <laughs> no but that's staying in <laughs> Um, but well, no, I, my favourite things are generally um, um, big structures that use steel and another material. So I love glass houses, like mm. big botanical buildings are just my favourite, yeah. especially the kind of Victorian ones with slight twiddly bits, but also kind of that kind of rusty, decaying mm-hmm. 
grandeur. Thing. Oh, nice. So it's interesting that you should say Crystal Palace because I recently wrote an article about Crystal Palace. Oh. Um, and we were talking about how steel making and blacksmithing really changed during the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And that was what allowed the Crystal Palace to be made. So yeah. when it was first commissioned, they had like eight months to make it. And construct How do you it. make a structure like that in eight months? Right. So the secret to their success was the fact that they had these new industrial steel making processes mm-hmm. and they could make multiple versions of identical things. So the whole Crystal Palace was based on a modular cube or cuboid shape. Mm-hmm. And they just in bulk made all of these different shapes that they could just prefabricate. They made them in Birmingham, shipped them to London, and a bit like Lego, really. They just slotted together, yeah. Um, They did loads of really clever things with reducing all the parts. So the sort of the main pillars of steel, which held up the main building, Mm -hmm. they doubled as rain gutters, um, and they had this kind of ingenious roofing system where the rain would, like, flow off the glass and then flow into the little channels, but all of the channels were also structural. And oh, wow. so they kind of reduced the number of parts that they had to make by making them multifunctional. Yes. Yeah, so really, really fascinating. And the same with the glass as well. They just discovered this new process of making big sheets of glass. So the actual dimensions of the Crystal Palace were just multiples of the dimensions of the standard size of glass that they could fit in. Oh, I didn't realise it was a sort of IKEA structure. The original IKEA structure. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. And then they they rebuilt the Crystal Palace in what is now Crystal Palace Mm -hmm. in South London. And then it burnt down. I guess the steel just kind of all melted and... And maybe burnt. Maybe burnt. Maybe it was a giant sparkler. sparkler. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, apparently you could see it for miles and miles around. Wow. Yeah. And then that turned into the V&A, all of the stuff that was inside it. Yeah, all the all of the profits from the original uh, exhibition went to fund the V&A, the Science Museum and the Natural History Museum. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, yeah, to compare with other building materials, the Crystal Palace was built in about eight months. Mm-hmm. The Albert Hall, just down the road, um, which was a similar height, took four years to build wow. out of bricks. So steel and glass was much steel, quicker. Much better. Yeah. Right, should we do some quick fire steel facts? Okay. It's often said that spider silk is stronger than steel, but it isn't. Debunked. Debunked. <laughs> but an unverified fact, okay, which is that it would take the blood of 400 people to get enough iron to forge a sword. That's not very many people. So, so it's either that we've got a lot of iron in our blood or that it's a very small sword. <laughs> yeah. Hello, this is Anna from the future again. If you're wondering about the working of this, uh, turns out humans have about three to four grams of iron in their bodies and swords are around, say, 1.5 kilograms. So, yeah, it turns out it would take around 400 people to have enough iron to make a sword. The legendary Damascus steel was recently found to contain carbon nanotubes. What are carbon nanotubes? <laughs> These they are, sound exciting. Yeah. Um, they are teeny tiny rolled up bits of graphene. You've probably heard of graphene as well. Mm-hmm. Graphene is just a single layer of carbon atoms all joined together. Carbon nanotube is just one of those rolled up okay. into a cylinder. But Damascus steel is a really interesting thing. Um, I've made it before and you you get two different types of steel and fire weld them together. 
And then you just continue to chop that and weld it together till you've got hundreds and hundreds of layers. And I suppose it's the two different types of steel that you've got there, one which is kind of a bit more brittle um, but harder, and then one is more flexible and softer. And because you've got so many layers of them, the, they work quite well together and you create a blade that's, you know, both flexible and strong. Wow. OK, so a bit like a composite material, which is very cool. And it creates some really beautiful patterns. Mm. So, you, you know, this sort of the chef's knives you get that have got those kind of wood style, style patterns. That's awesome. Um, is there anything else we want to cover? I think that there should be more blacksmiths and that we should get that to happen. Okay, how can so. we get that to happen? <laughs> Apart from making real talk, like part of the standard syllabus in schools. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously that. I think everyone should have a bit of a go. I know that people of my parents' generation did things like metalwork at school. Right. So it's a bit of a shame that we don't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, there are quite a lot of blacksmiths around and I think most of them do teaching. Yeah. So. Right, so where can people go if they want to give this a go themselves? If you go to the British Artist Blacksmithing Association website, there's a whole list of blacksmiths on that that do teaching. Cool. But also if you just search for your local blacksmith on Google, normally they come up. Nice. Um, and it really isn't as hard as you think it's going to be. Yeah. I promise. I'm going to ask you this, but if it's a question that annoys you, okay. then you don't have to answer. <laughs> you can just be like, no. Um, <laughs> what's it like being a woman in the blacksmithing world? It's absolutely brilliant, I have to say. The actual blacksmiths that I've met have all been incredibly welcoming. There are tons of female blacksmiths out there. Occasionally there's a bit of a kind of boys only kind of vibe from some people but generally it's great the times that it's been hardest I think are in hardware shops right. often you go into a hardware shop and they won't believe that you know what you're talking about mm -hmm. so that's really frustrating and you're like I literally have made this hammer yes <laughs> oh. so quite often I'll go in and ask for a tool and they'll be like that doesn't exist darling oh like, no I was using one this morning <laughs> I know it does exist. Please can I have one? Oh, no. And there have been quite a few times that, you know, I've been... I've made sure to go into a hardware shop in my boiler suit. Right. Because I don't want to go in in a dress because I know that I'll not command the respect. Mm -hmm. You know, there are times when you go into a big metalworking workshop mm. and there'll be you know calendars of naked ladies on the wall no it'd be a bit like oh hi guys what calendar have you got in your workshop <laughs> <laughs> obviously blacksmithing hunks <laughs> <laughs> gotta fight sexism with sexism yeah. <laughs> yeah i find it really interesting though that so i work in a studio full of other mainly other women who do kind of exciting things like woodworking and uh, sculptural stuff sign painting lots and lots of interesting crafts and they love tools and things to make things with like they get really excited when they a new tool comes in the post it's awesome though that you've got a collective there of people that are sort of similar to you and have similar interests and yeah. things that excite them it's really interesting being able to collaborate on things but it's also, 
So I've got lots of friends who are ceramicists who I've made tools for um, and just that kind of being able to he- help each other to do our careers is, is really lovely. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Agnes. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been really interesting. Thanks. Yeah. How can people find you? What's your website? Are you on Twitter? How can everybody look at what you're up to and then maybe have a look at what you're making as well? So my website is www.agnesjones.com and you can find me on Instagram at Agnes M. Jones. Super. Well, listeners, you know where to go if you want to see some amazing blacksmith work. Um, I had a look on your website this week and my favourite thing was the pigeons that you've made. (laughs) Yeah, I had some weird obsession with pigeons for a while. I think it was living in London. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun to make them and then put them around Trafalgar Square and be like, oh, pigeons making friends with the pigeons. They're really lovely. Are they still there? No. Oh, okay. No. You just sort of flash mob. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I wasn't really allowed to take photos of them because you're not allowed to use photos of Trafalgar Square to promote yourself. Oh, so Fun I fact. Didn't know that. Um, they, yeah. Oh well. Until the website gets taken down, <laughs> <laughs> I recommend that listeners have a little look at the pigeons on Agnes's website because they're really lovely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so that was my fantastic conversation with blacksmith Agnes Jones. Thanks so much again to her for coming on the podcast. It's now time for me to answer your questions on materials. So thank you to everyone that's written in with a question about metals and steels for this episode. The first one comes from somebody called Pet Rock on Twitter, who says, How much raw ore does it take to produce the metal in a car? Now, I had to make quite a lot of assumptions in this to try and work this out. So if we assume that there's around a thousand kilograms of steel in a car, okay, modern cars might have a bit less than this because the amount of steel in cars is trying to be reduced all the time to save on fuel and things. But let's say that there's around a thousand kilograms of steel in a car. Now, the main stuff that goes into making steel, as we've heard in today's episode, is iron ore, coal, and also scrap steel as well. Steel can be recycled. So... If you assume that 55% of the raw material that goes into making that steel is iron ore, 30% is coal, and 15% is scrap steel. Well, if you take into the account the densities of those raw materials, it works out that you'd need around the same volume as a medium-sized fish tank of iron ore, the volume of a large fridge freezer full of coal, and approximately a camping backpack full of recycled steel. That would be enough raw material to make enough steel for a car. The second question this episode comes from Asa Johansson on Twitter. I really hope I've pronounced your name right there. And they ask, why are some metals magnetic and others not? So to answer this question, we're going to have to dive in to look at what exactly the atoms of these magnetic materials are made from. Now, all atoms have a certain number of electrons in them, and all of these electrons have what we call a magnetic moment. In other words, you can think of these little electrons as teeny tiny tiny bar magnets. In most atoms, electrons are paired in opposite ways. So the pairs behave like two opposite bar magnets connected together, which effectively cancels out the magnetic field that they produce. Now, the atoms of magnetic elements like iron and nickel and cobalt, they have unpaired electrons. And these electrons have magnetic fields which aren't cancel out in pairs. So each atom gets an overall magnetic field, the same as a bar magnet, really. Now, if you stack all of these atoms up in a metallic object, what you get is an overall magnetic effect. 
Now, here's a bit of bonus material for the materials nerds out there. Um, you might have heard of magnetic domains. Now, most large magnets will be made up of lots of these little tiny magnetic domains. And these domains are bits of crystalline material which all have their magnetization in the same direction. And this is the reason why you can get strong and weak magnets because the stronger the magnet is, the more of these domains there are that are all aligned with the same magnetization in the same direction. Right, well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of Real Talk. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you've got any further questions about steel or metals or materials in general, you can always tweet me at Real Talk. That's R-I-A-L Talk on Twitter. And don't forget, you can also leave us an iTunes review. We've had a couple of really lovely reviews. and I really appreciate this. So I'd absolutely love to hear what you think about the podcast. And if you happen to feel like giving us a five-star review as well and saying some lovely words, that would really make my Christmas. So finally, all that is left to say is I hope you have a very happy festive season and a very happy new year. And you can catch a Real Talk again in 2018. I've been Anna Pajajski. I'll see you next time on Real Talk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.